Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Brighton podcast. We exist to help people love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coabrighton.org. That's C-O-A-H-Brighton.org. Well, today, friends, we start a brand new teaching series. We're going through the book of Ephesians. And so if you have a a copy of God's Word, you can go ahead and open that up. Uh, We're going to have some Bibles available in the seats for you in the weeks to come. Uh, But with COVID protocols, we're just working through some of that. If you've got your Bible uh, or your phone, you can open up to Ephesians uh, chapter 1. And I'm going to read this for us. If you were here last week, we did just a brief introduction of who is Paul, why was this letter written, and we learned that the church that Paul's writing to, uh, this famous missionary, this church was a church plant, like just like you, just like me, part of a brand new church in the city called Ephesus. And we looked at the book of Acts, chapter 19, and saw how did Paul come to this city, start sharing the good news of Jesus, start building relationships, and this church was formed. And then Paul was in prison through his missionary work and he began to write letters to churches. So that's the backdrop. And so today we're looking at the very first six verses of this incredibly packed full, but short book of the Bible. So with that said, let me read for us Ephesians chapter one, starting in verse one. It says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, As you walked in today, you might've noticed that we're giving you, each of you a free gift. And so that's a, a journaling Bible. And so it's one book of the Bible. And you notice if you open that up, if it's a, it's a little uh, black soft cover. And so you open it up, the Bible passage is on the left side and you can take notes on the right side. So um, we believe at Sedona Hill, we're people of the book. We look at God's book, the Bible, and we begin to learn something about him. And when we do that, we learn something about us. And a lot of what we're gonna learn today is about how beautifully grand God is and then what that means for you and I in our daily life. So let's jump right in. Um, Letters in the ancient world uh, followed a specific template or a specific form. Um, They began often by identifying the reader, and then it would identify the writer. Uh, They usually followed by a greeting and a prayer of, of good health or good wish. Even in secular letters, it would do this. And then you see something happen in verse three down to 23. That was a a giant prayer that we're going to see together. Then after the greeting in this prayer would come the body of the letter where the writer would begin to unpack something specific that he wants to communicate to a church or a group of people. 
Then the letter would close out and then it would close with some details about maybe how the letter was sent or what they're praying for. And then it leaves you with a final greeting. So I think I've got a picture of that. Um, is there a picture like of a, there we go. This is sort of the layout of this book. And so today, guys, we're just looking at the introduction, the greeting, and part of the prayer. So this is a lot that we're going to unpack. We're taking this book all the way into March. It's only got about six chapters, but we're going to see a lot about who God is and a lot about who we are. So this is the template that often secular letters in ancient times would use this template. And Christians borrowed this and brought this in to use this beautiful template for its own purposes. And so if you check out the very introduction of Ephesians, you'll see some of this template. Look at verse one. It says this. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, again, an apostle is someone who has seen the risen Christ. He has been saved by them by faith and they've been sent out. So you can imagine apostle, someone who has seen Christ, been saved by Christ and then sent out on mission by Christ. So it says, Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. That's the writer. And then he's saying, who is he writing to? To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice here that the author and the recipients are not merely identified, but they're described by their relationship to Christ. Did you guys see that? It's a huge theme that we'll see in this letter. So instead, here's what I'm saying. Instead of stating Paul to the Ephesians greeting, Paul describes himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus. And his readers, he did the same thing. He said, those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. So with this expression of in Christ Jesus, we encounter one of the most significant points in this letter and the very first words. Paul is not merely saying that these people believed in Christ. Listen, rather, they were literally in Christ positionally. This concept of being in Christ is one of the most important parts of our theology and of this book. In fact, of the 13 letters that this guy wrote, Paul, he used in Christ or in the Lord or in him 164 times. So what does it mean to be in Christ or in the Lord or of Christ Jesus? This language is so important because it expresses the oneness or the identity that a believer shares with Christ. Listen, if you're new to Christianity, Christianity is all about our union and the blessings in the relationship with Jesus. And this is the meaning of verse one in the very first part of Ephesians. It focuses on our union with Christ. Being in Christ is super important for us to understand. See, in Paul's mind, just as these Christians lived physically in Ephesus, they also lived positionally in Christ. Now think about if you grew up in Ephesus for a moment, or let's say you just grew up in Boston for a moment. Think about the Ephesian maybe terrain or the Boston terrain. Think about the city's uh, climate or its, its values, its culture, its history in which these people grew up and they, they lived. That culture, that terrain shaped them, didn't it? And it shaped you wherever you grew up. It defined who you were. And just as the culture in Ephesus shaped who these people were, Paul is saying now Christ is the one 
who reshapes and redefines who you are in radical and beneficial ways. Do you see that play on words Paul is using here? You are in Ephesus, but you are really in Christ. Do you see that? Paul is wanting you and I to understand something about the blessing and the union and the relationship of being in Christ. The idea of being in Christ means that Jesus is the ultimate sphere of influence or the cultural landscape in which Christians live and from which we are reshaped and transformed. That is at the very heart, the values, the character, the history and the purposes of Jesus are now to radically reorient our lives. So let me pause for a moment and bring it from the high up and let's bring it down to our own hearts for a moment. What about you? What are you in? What shapes and defines you? Does the culture of being in Boston shape you? Or the position you have in your job define you? Maybe the parental or the marital status you are in or not in, does that define you? What shapes you, friends? Is it being in Christ or is it being in something else? This is profound. All of us find our worth and value in something, don't we? We find our sense of self or our sense of esteem in something. But what if that something falls apart? What if you get an ailment and you're not able to work the way you thought or a relationship breaks up and you were defined by being in that relationship or in that city or in that job and it falls apart? The blessings for Christianity is the fact that Christ never falls apart. He never shifts. He never moves. He never abandons. So being in him is where you can really be steady and secure. Does that make sense? And Paul's giving us that theology right from the beginning. He's saying Ephesus or, or Christians in, in Ephesus. He's saying, I know you live in Ephesus, but do you realize that you live in Christ? And he sees you and he loves you. He's watching over you. And I want the values of Jesus to be the values of your heart. So friends, what do you love? What do you value? What's important to you? Are those the same things that Jesus values? And I would encourage you, the more that you find and unpack what Jesus loves and the culture of his heart, you'll find something good for you, beneficial about his heart. So friends, this is what we're seeing in the very, very beginning. Paul's insight here, living both in a specific place and living in Christ is such a profound insight into the life of God. Guys, if you remember, the Christian faith is not an attractive set of ideas or a nice avenue to follow. It's hard to be a Christian. But Christianity is not just this set of moral rules for us to do. Christianity is about being in Christ who did all the moral rules on our behalf so we could be accepted and have a relationship with him. Rather, it's so deep of an engagement with Christ, so deep a union with God that Paul can only describe it as living in Christ. So to live in Christ means this, it's to be determined by him. Not our job, our marital status, our parental status, not even how we contribute to Christian ministry. We can't find our identity in anything else. It's he that shapes us. And guys, we're gonna spend here all day because that was like just verse one for us to get in. But do you see that? You're either shaped by Ephesus or you're shaped by Christ. 
The more you're shaped by Ephesus, you crash down. If your values are everything of the world, you crash down. Not saying that the world's values are often all terrible, but Ephesus is no longer the same Ephesus that it was, but Christ is the same God as he's always been. How do you find yourself? What's your value? Where do you find your worth? Is it in something that can change or based on your health or based on your intellect? When that can fade, then your identity or your value will fade. And Paul's saying, you are in Christ Jesus. Now, after the initial identification, kind of hopping back in here, after the initial identification of the author, someone is of Christ Jesus and the recipients in Christ Jesus, the ancient Christian letters usually contained a prayer or a praise, which we start to see in verse three. And we're only gonna go through verse three through six today because we're gonna go slowly through this book to unpack all the riches that are here. Now, while most English translations don't show it, the Greek text, which was how the book was originally written in Greek, uh, verses three through 14 are one unusually long sentence. Now, if you know me, you're friends with me, you know that I love run-on sentences. I might be the biggest run-on preacher on the planet. There's like no period of when I stop talking, right? And this is what you see here in verse three. It's a beginning praise that Paul gives towards God. And what it's doing, it's a, he's presenting one cascading description of God's work in Christ after another, after another, after another. And it just keeps crescendoing all the blessings of what it is to be in Christ. And it's powerful. Paul felt the riches of God's grace so much so that his language is exuberant. The rhythm and the cadence, the reoccurring phrases in this book, all is a powerful description of who God is. And when we see who God is, guys, it affects everything for your life. The hardest moments you walk through, the challenges you face relationally, the hardships you endure, you will see the grandeur of God in the midst of your challenge and you will be able to walk through it with hope and confidence that someone else is with you and in you when everything around you is crumbling apart. So if you look at verse three through four, uh, they function sort of as the thesis for the entire book. This book has six chapters in it and verse three and verse four are really the thesis. They're the summary statement of the entire book and the entire book is the commentary on verse three and four. So let's read this together. When I said together, I'm saying, I'm gonna read it. You guys listen, okay? <laughs> verse three, it says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be homely, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now these verses really reveal the very heart of the letter, showing us that this book is all about God's blessing us in Christ and what that means for your everyday life. And then the remaining chapters seem to just kind of unfold this idea one after another. And so that's why I've titled today's message this, Blessed Beyond Belief. Because we're gonna unpack in this book all of the riches of what it is to be in a relationship with Jesus. So whether you're a seasoned Christian or whether you consider yourself a seeker or even a skeptic of Christianity, you're welcome. And I want to give you a front row seat in this book to see all the ways God 
loves us and blesses us in a relationship with him. So this is good news that God gave us this book because it's a front row seat to see those things. So here's the three questions that we're gonna unpack briefly in our time together. Three questions is what are the spiritual blessings that are revealed in this passage? Number two, how do we get them? And number three, why does God give us these spiritual blessings? So number one, let's unpack this. What are the spiritual blessings in this chapter? Let's look at verse three and verse four again. It says this, it says, blessed, which is another word for praise be. So Paul's starting out, he's saying, listen, you're in Christ. Let's turn to God for a second. He's like, praise God for the following things that he says. So he says, praise God, be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's why he's praising God, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, what's that mean? What does that mean, spiritual blessings? Does that mean that things you're just gonna kind of get in heaven one day if you're in Christ? Or does it mean you're gonna get like magical powers to get that A on your final because like you have a relationship with God so you don't have to study and now you have this mystical powers? Like what does spiritual blessings mean? That term spiritual in verse three does not mean that you get some sort of otherworldly powers. Or it doesn't suggest that just spiritual gifts that you'll find in 1 Corinthians 12. Rather, this expression refers to all that God's spirit brings to the Christian life. The letter that we're gonna read is gonna unfold all of these blessings one by one, but the immediate context of these blessings are this. We're gonna see how God blesses us with this concept of election. That's gonna blow your mind in a little bit. If you're, if you're from church, the concept of God choosing a people that he will love and adopt as his own, the immediate things that we see here are the blessings of election, of adoption, of grace, of forgiveness, of the revelation or understanding of who he is, of this thing called the gospel, the good news of how God takes a people like me who once hated him and wanted nothing to do with him, but he came after me to love me enough to transform my heart, forgive me of my rebellion and bring me back into a relationship with him. That's the gospel and the Holy Spirit. And we'll see later in this verse, in verses 13 and 14, that the spirit of God is the primary gift and source of all the other blessings that you and I get to enjoy. That's what spiritual means. God is giving us these intangibles that our hearts long for. Guys, do we not long to be wanted, to be understood? Like what frustrates you in your relationships with your friends or your spouse or your roommate? You don't feel like you're understood, right? or that you're not cared for, right? That you're not, you're not loved. These are deep things in every human heart that we long for. And this passage is showing you that there's a hole in us in a way that only God can fill. And in this beginning three verses, we're understanding something that God has blessed us in Christ with the very things our heart crave, like love, like forgiveness, like grace, like comfort. And God is saying that he's not some distant God, that we're blessed in Christ Jesus in this real time, this real space in Boston to give us what our heart longs for most. This is precious to learn about these things. So most immediately in this context, there's three blessings that I wanna talk about. The big question, what are the blessings? There's three of them that are in this passage and there are thousands more in this book. There's just three I wanna unpack today. Election, redemption, and adoption. Let me show you these again. It says in verse four, this, it says, even as, and this is how it begins. 
So remember verse three says, hey, you've been blessed in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. And then it starts in verse four. Here's where it begins. The cascade of God's love. Even, number one, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That we should be, effectually, God will make this happen, make us holy and blameless before him. In love, verse five, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. Okay, polling question, be real with me. Uh, Raise your hand if you have heard of the concept or the doctrine of election. Just raise your hand. I'm not gonna call on you. Uh, Raise your hand if you've not had a good experience with people talking about the doctrine of election in your life. Anyone raise your hand on that? Yeah, you're like, okay, this gets a little sketchy here, right? What, What are we saying? Guys, the concept of election is a really, really challenging one. But in this text, I want you to see the beauty of it and how it impacts not just your everlasting eternal life in heaven for the Christian, but how it impacts your everyday life here on earth. See, it's in this passage that we discover that behind the veil of this life, God is working on your behalf. As you lived every day as a kid and you grew up and you moved to Boston or you got your degree, God is doing something behind the curtain of the stage of your life. And the doctrine of election is showing how God died for your sins, brought you to faith, is wooing your heart to come to him when you were so distant from him, not wanting a relationship with him and how he brought you into his family. Election is God simply, it's this, it's his unconditional act of free grace, which is given to us in Christ Jesus from the beginning of the world to bring you home. By this act, God chose us before the foundation of the world that those would be delivered from the bondage of sin and brought to repentance and saving faith in Jesus. It's God saying this, I love you. I want you to be in a relationship with me for your good and for my glory. So what we see here is that salvation is not some accident or afterthought on God's part. God's purpose has always been to draw humanity into a relationship with himself. Before the foundation of the world does not just mean prior to creation. Rather, it expresses that God's purposes are rooted in the depths of his nature, which eternally existed before the foundation of the world. Meaning this, in the very heart of God, before the first atom or molecule was in existence, God had your name, your heart, your future story on his heart. And God knew according to the Bible that it teaches that our hearts don't want to come to him. We wanna be autonomous. We don't wanna depend on someone else. We don't wanna come to somebody else for grace or forgiveness. What do we really do that bad? And our hearts are turned against him. But before the foundation of the world, God knew the positioning our hearts would be. And so in love, God came after you and me. God sought after us in our place of struggle when we weren't seeking after him. And this is an act of love that God did that before the foundation of the world made a plan so that you and I could be in a relationship with him. 
Let me give you a quick example. Um, I am not God, not like you needed a reminder of that, but to remind you, I'm not God. Um, but there's something similar when you go through the story of adoption, it reminds you something about election. So if you're familiar with my family, I'll share just a little bit. We've got two little girls, one named Kiana, who's four, who we adopted her and she's from Boston. She was born and she's being raised here. And then we have another little girl named Shasera and she's two. And so neither of these girls picked me as their father. Both of these little girls were in a really trying and challenging situation in their life with a lot of hurt, with a lot of neglect, with a lot of abuse. These girls didn't pick the situation that they were in and they couldn't pick to get their way out. And God in his good grace towards these little girls brought our church along, brought our family and supporting families along. We met these two little girls and in my wife's heart and my heart in our church's heart, we all said, I choose you. These little girls didn't ask for me to be their daddy, for you to be their church, for Emily to be their mom. They were in a dire situation, a lot of challenge, a lot of abuse, a lot of hurt, and they needed a new permanent home to live. And in that place, when they were unable to choose, unable to escape, unable to get themselves out, God used a set of social workers, a set of families, a set of church to bring those little girls to say, I choose you. I will take care of you. I'll love you. I'll nurture you. Before you could even choose me, before you knew my story, I knew yours. And I want a relationship with you. Well, I'll bear the burden of helping you to heal and cope. I'll raise you. Whatever's mine's gonna be yours because I love you. And these little girls didn't get to choose. They didn't know a way out but there's a people who came after them to love them. And they're a part of our family permanently. P.S. If you know me, just a quick update. We get to finalize Shasera's adoption, November the 19th. We are very excited about that. And we celebrate that because of this concept of God choosing and loving. Does that illustration make sense? There's a, there's a choosing, there's a, I'm a coming after you. It's not that I don't love the rest of the children in the world. It's that I love these two in particular. And I'm gonna have a plan of action before they knew me. I'm gonna have a plan of action to love them. My friends, if you're in Christ, that's what God did for you. Before you were born, before the first molecule atom was in existence, God's mind and heart knew your future mind and heart. And he would set a, a, a circumstances and people and events in your life to bring you to himself. This is the loving father that adopted us. And this is the first blessing we see. God uh, puts on a home movie for us. We all sit down. He's like, let me show you all the blessings I have for you. Let me wind back. You see the little molecule? That's me. I did that. And then he winds forward. He says, I elected you. I chose to come after you. I knew that you would be born thousands and thousands and thousands of years in the future. And I chose you back here. And here's the course of the plan of my life of how I'm going to bring you into a relationship. And that's all we see in the very first verses of this book. What does that mean for your daily life? Moms, do you feel overshadowed, un, uncared for? Moms, during the nights you're caring for your baby and you're thinking, who cares about me and my sleep? You can look backwards and see that someone cared for you before there was even a baby born. Those of you who are struggling with mental health, suicide, depression, anxiety, 
when you think this life, there's just too much in this life for me to handle. Will anyone care for me? Will anyone help me out of this darkness? There's one who cared before light even existed. So if he can bring light into darkness, he can care for you in the exact place of darkness that you're in and bring you out of that into his light. My friends, this has powerful implications. The doctrine of election is not just some distant theological concept. It's a very intimate concept. If you're sitting here and you're a single and you desire marriage and somehow you have a a view that maybe you feel like you're not married because you're not good enough or something, that you don't look a certain way, that you don't dress a certain way, that the other uh, 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 gender doesn't love you enough to be in a marriage relationship and you're thinking there's something wrong with me, I want you to see that there's nothing wrong with you, that you were deeply loved and valued by someone so much that they would go to the cross to die for you so that you could be in a relationship with them. This is the good news. That's the first blessing we see. And if I don't go faster, guys, we're never gonna get out of this place. Praise God they have air conditioning in here. Very different than Brighton High School. Okay, you guys good with election? Got all the questions solved? Good. It's going to come up way more times in this book. So that's why I'm just kind of giving you a brief overview at this point in time. The second blessing we see here is redemption. We talked about it briefly, but the text reads this, that we were chosen in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. So God chose us to do something for us, namely, God wanted us to be two words, holy and blameless. What does that mean? That seems really archaic religious language, right? That word holy simply means to be set apart. God wanted to bring you out of the darkness of sin. And sin is simply just going against the grain of God's design for human flourishing. And we go against that. We hurt ourselves. And so God enters into that space and he says, you're going against my design. I'm gonna love you. I'm not gonna condemn you in this place. I'm gonna love you and pay for your sin in this place. And I wanna bring you out of that. So holy means I'm gonna set you up out of that. And I'm gonna bring you into a relationship with me. Holy means set apart. God's gonna bring us out and bring us in. Is that not what we see with adoption as well? God bringing us out of a set of challenging circumstances in a place of in good circumstances in him so that we should be holy and then blameless. Meaning this, this is the beautiful thing about Christianity. Guys, we don't enter into a relationship with God. We don't go to heaven if you're good. Do you realize that? The Christianity is not a set of religious or moral rules. And if you're good enough and play your part, then you get God. Do you realize that? It's not based on your goodness. It's based on Jesus's goodness. Jesus was perfect because he knew you wouldn't be. And so he gives you that as your identity. You've sinned. He dies for on the cross. He removes it. Jesus's perfection, his record of living 33 years on this earth without sin. We believe in a historical, real, physical living Jesus who lived perfectly, accomplished all the moral rules. He lived it perfectly so you could have his righteousness. And that's what makes us blameless before him. This is a mind-blowing concept for us, right? Because we feel guilt and shame, don't we? But do you realize Jesus took all the guilt, all the shame, all the sin that we've ever done in our whole entire past, present, future. He takes it and he puts it on the cross and he looks at you and says, blameless, innocent. And then he looks at everything that Jesus did right, every perfect thing he obeyed. 
everything that he did morally right. He takes all of that and he puts it on you. So not only does he say blameless, he says righteous. Is that not mind-blowing? That means you don't have to hide from God when you sin. No matter how far you've been away from God, maybe this is the first time you're coming back to church. Maybe it's God, the one that brought you here. Or if you're listening online, you and I don't have to be ashamed of what we've done because Christ has covered that shame on the cross. There's nothing that you and I can do or should do or have to do in order to get our sin paid for or to get in a relationship with God. Jesus did it all for us. We simply believe. We simply trust like a child would that their parent would pick them up, love them, or care for them. That's redemption, that God would set you up out of a circumstance, bring you into a circumstance, and then say, you're blameless and you're righteous. So we see election, we see redemption, and the last one here, we see adoption. This thing we've been talking about, this imagery of bringing into family. Look at verse five, I love this. It says, in love, he predestined us for adoption. I love how this passage begins with in love because it shows you the very heart of God, that God himself wanted you in particular. Here's how I know that. It says this, in love, he predestined or predetermined, he set a plan in motion for us, for adoption, and then this is cool, for adoption to himself. Do you realize that God didn't delegate your care to somebody else? He's doing it personally. God didn't delegate your life away to someone else to take care of. If you're in Christ, God cares for you and what you are going through in particular. Adoption to himself. Do you know what that means? He's taking the sole responsibility of loving you and caring for you and guiding you. And he's giving you these, these, um, th- th- this pathway of flourishing through the commands of scripture to give you this life to benefit you. He's taking the sole ownership of the care for you. Is that not powerful to think about? God didn't just adopt you into some great family with lots of churches and tons of Christians all around the world, but it says adoption to himself. He is caring for you in the darkest of nights, in the challenging of moments, in your depression, your anxiety, your sleepless nights with the baby, the challenge at work, the being far away from family, not knowing your roommate, uh, uh, up and down because of COVID, the, the loss that we've all faced. God is taking on himself saying, I will guide and love and care and nurture my children. Do you know what that means for you? That means that you don't have, you don't have to care for every single detail of your life and wear yourself out. Yes, we should be responsible. Yes, we should work hard at work. But that doesn't mean you have to hold your life together. And if you don't, then you tank your life. Do you see what I'm saying? Do you see how this frees you to think about that you've been adopted? Think about when you were a a child. Maybe there was a family member or a guardian who took really good care of you and you just kind of knew they'd be there for you. They provide a meal for you. They comfort you. It's better than even that. God's taking sole responsibility of the care for you. You've been adopted in his family. What's his is yours. When you think you were not loved or sought after or thought about, he made plans for you before the first molecule. And now that you're in existence, wouldn't he care even more? And he'll never cease to care for you. Lonely Christian, tired Christian, be encouraged with this. You're adopted in his family for all of time.
So how do we get these blessings? These are just three for today. How do we get them though? What must we do? Maybe you're a guest, you're exploring these claims. What must you do to get these things? Did you notice verse one and two? Let me show you verse one and two again. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. And then it says these powerful two words. It says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know how you get those? You don't do anything. Grace means free gift, unearned, packaged for you. Peace is the life you can have knowing that God has given you everything you need in him. If you're type one, if you're Enneagram fan, if you're one, three, eight, this helps you all calm down. How do we get my life together? How do I know everything's gonna pan out? How do I know? Planning's fine. But isn't it better to lean on the ultimate perfect planner? And in this passage, we have that he has done this for us. How do we get these blessings? It's by the grace of Jesus and the peace of Jesus, reconciling us to God. We get these things by faith. And look what it says in that verse. It says, grace to you and peace from whom? Who are they from? It's from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you realize that God, the Father, God, the Son, you're gonna see in verse 13 and 14 is God, the Holy Spirit. There's a triune care for your life. There's three persons of the Trinity. We believe in one God at our church, but there's three eternal persons of equal essence. God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit. They're all the same essence, but they have different roles in human history to care for you. And it says, God the Father and God the Son has grace for you and has peace for you. This is mind-blowing for us. Together, God the Father and God the Son are the source of grace. Hey, struggling Christian in this room, that maybe this past week you were just beat up by your own choices. Things you said to your spouse, things you said to your kids, things you looked at on the internet, things you're stealing or taking from work. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Christianity is not some moral camp that you can be in if you're good. It's a camp that if you're a failure and you're a sinner, you're allowed in and you get loved because God forgives us with his grace and he gives us peace no matter what we did last night, no matter what we did this year. Grace to you and peace. It's free for us. Last thing, and then we'll conclude. So how does God, sorry, why does God give us these spiritual blessings? Why does he do it? And then we conclude with verse five and verse six. It says this, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which with he has blessed us in the beloved. So why does God do all of this? Why did he bless us to be in Christ? Why is he making us holy and blameless before him? Why does he forgive our sin? Why did he elect you? Why is he redeeming us? Why is he adopting us? So that you and I would praise his name and share his name with the nations so that more and more people can live a life of flourishing on this earth and then live with forever with God in heaven for all of eternity. God did this so that you could know him, so I could know him, so that we could praise his name and his character so that everyone would know who he is. Grace then 
is just a simple word that we bring over from the Old Testament from, from Hebrew. In the New Testament, the meaning of the word is charis. It combines some essential themes of the New Testament with the words hen, which focuses on a mercy that a superior gives to an inferior. It's mercy. And hased is another word, which stresses a covenant faithfulness. So we see this word grace means that superior God cares for inferior people with the continual forever covenant faithfulness and he'll never give up. The basic connotation of the Greek word causes us to delight and rejoice in the beauty, kindness, and love of God. Grace then is the reason why God does all of this. It's for the, his praise of his glorious grace. That's why, so that you would know his grace. So you don't have to pick yourself up every day and strive out for a better uh, PhD program to get through your residency, get to your internship at the hospital. You have to pick yourself up every day, hoping that you can just make it in this life. There's someone else who is loving you and guiding you. And he does all of it to the praise of his name and so we can know who he is. It's not something that God just gives us. Grace is God giving us himself. It's his coming alongside of us to embrace us, to work for our benefit. Grace, listen, we'll close with this analogy. Grace is the judge of the universe coming down to ask criminals like me to sit down at his house for a meal in his home where he would remove my guilty sentence against him, adopt me as his own, and then shower on me the blessings after blessings after blessings after blessings of being part of his family for all of eternity. And it's because of this that he is worthy of our praise and our pursuit of him in his ways all the days of our life. Because of these blessings and beyond, we are to live to the praise of his glorious grace, which with he has blessed us in the beloved. So today, my friends, whether you're a seeker, skeptic, or seasoned Christian, let us choose to live influenced by being in Christ rather than in anything else. And you do this for your good and his glory. Let's pray.